Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your word become flesh, Jesus, who will has now the privilege of preaching to us from James 3. We pray that you would fill him with your spirit, uh, bring all of the fullness of your blessing through his words, um, give him confidence, give him all that he needs, and help us uh, to take a next step to grow in Christ as we listen. So bless him and bless us all for the good and strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Thomas. Well, good morning, Parkview. Uh, it's so good to be here with you. As Thomas said, my name is Will Fieldberth. I'm one of your pastors here at Parkview. Uh, normally, I am about eight inches higher and hiding behind a guitar on Sunday mornings, but today I have the privilege of hiding behind this pulpit. So, uh, actually, I have the privilege of opening up the God's Word as we continue in the book of James. We will be in James 3, 1 through 12. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, James 3, 1 through 12. As we've seen over the past several weeks here in James, God is commanding his people to respond to his word with obedience. In line with language that we try to use here at Parkview, James is seeking to instruct his audience on what it looks like to be a whole disciple. For those of you that are new here or maybe haven't heard this terminology before, uh, it's part of our mission statement is to be forming whole disciples of Jesus Christ, which means that we aim to be a people where every aspect of our lives are submitted to Christ. It is not enough that we claim to believe something. James is calling his audience to examine themselves and see if their actions match these beliefs. Two weeks ago, Pastor Mark looked at the sin of partiality and the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. We must love our neighbor as ourselves, caring for the poor and lowly, showing mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. And then last week, Pastor Wade zoomed out a little bit to show how, from a different examples in biblical stories, how faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith and trust in Jesus demands a response in action. This week, James turns his attention to one of the most obvious tests of this faith being lived out as he makes several pointed reflections about our use of words. This is probably one of the more familiar passages in the book of James because of the vivid images used in this passage. It's often said, and it's certainly true for me, that stories and illustrations are the portions of sermons that stick longest in my memory. James knew what he was doing in helping his readers to remember this important lesson about words through the many metaphors that he uses in these 12 verses. It's also probably one of the more familiar passages because of the great power and prominence of words in our lives. Looking back on my own life, one of the most impactful, life-changing days was focused, in a sense, on spoken words. I know many of you can relate to this experience, and almost all of you have witnessed this event at some point, but I've been married now to my wife, Savannah, for almost four years. And I remember that day vividly in July 2019 as Wade led us through the ceremony, standing between two trees under an arch of beautiful flowers, sweating buckets in my suit, as I spoke aloud words that were incredibly powerful and life-altering. As I spoke those vows out loud in front of our friends and family to love and care for Savannah until death do us part, I knew that my life would never be the same. Our words have immense power. And however, in contrast to those sweet words of wedding vows, we've also seen the damaging power of words in our own lives. And that's what James is pointing us to here today. James is aware of the power of words to do both good and unfortunately more often harm. This passage is somewhat unique in the book of James that is actually devoid of true imperatives. 
As we've pointed out many times during this series, this book is full of practical wisdom and advice on how to live. However, today, we will instead see several illustrations and observations from James on the use of the tongue. There are still key application points and ways that we can grow as whole disciples as we examine this passage. They're just not as obvious. And I made a couple discoveries and whole Bible connections as I was, in my, as I was preparing that I can't wait to share with you all. And so let's look at James 3, 1 through 12 together. The words will be on the screen, and I would encourage you to follow along as we treasure the Bible as our only source of truth. James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God." From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the words of life and truth. Would you move in this time by your Holy Spirit to both convict and comfort? Would you soften hearts and open minds to hear and do what you have prepared for us this morning? Lord, would you speak through me? Give me courage and clarity. I also pray these things for Pastor Doug and our brothers and sisters at East Campus as he opens up the word there this morning. And above all else, would you be glorified as we see whole disciples continue to be formed in the image of Christ? We ask this all in your most precious name. Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We were all probably taught this short saying as children, or at least have heard it said in good faith at some point in our lives. It's often offered as a comfort and an attempt to prepare us to the barrage of hurtful words that we will receive in the real world. The verbal assaults we would endure, the names we would be called, the gossip that would be spread about us to teach us that when we went to school or hung out with other people, that their words wouldn't cause real damage like physical objects would. I don't know about you, but I quickly discovered that this was a big, fat lie. More accurately, one might say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can stick with me for years and cause me to question and change everything about myself. Or as James might put it, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words are a deadly poison and can set your entire course of life on fire with fire from hell. As we will see today, James treats words with extreme caution and skepticism and wants us to do the same. 
This is also not the first time that James has addressed the use of speech in this book. Going back to James 1.19, we see James command his readers to be quick to hear, slow to speak. James 1.26 follows that up with the recognition that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James 2.12 tells us to speak as those who are judged under the law of liberty. He will also provide commands regarding the use of speech later in the book, as we will see in weeks to come. However, as already noted, this passage is somewhat unique in this book, as it consists primarily of observations and illustrations with no explicit commands. Before we leave here today, however, I hope to show you from this passage that the tongue is a powerful and poisonous instrument, and we must carefully examine the words that come out of our mouths. After an introduction to the section in the first couple verses of chapter 3, James goes on to show through many illustrations that our tongues are disproportionately powerful, verses 3 through 5, our tongues are deadly, verses 5 through 8, and our tongues are inconsistent, verses 9 through 12. Disproportionately powerful, deadly, and inconsistent. So let's look first at James' introduction. Look down with me at the text at verses 1 and 2. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I normally lead the music on Sunday mornings, and as Thomas said, this is my first time preaching here at Parkview. And so when Thomas assigned me this passage, I, and I started preparing, I kept asking myself, is Thomas trying to tell me something from verse 1 here? <laughs> Not many of you should teach. But seriously, why does James use this as his introduction to the section? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James does not get deep into the weeds here with qualifications for teachers or preachers, and so I, I won't either. But James is pointing to one area where, where people speak a lot and speak often with great impact. Teachers should not take their roles lightly and will be judged with greater strictness for a variety of reasons. Their speech can cause great good or great harm, but right here it is because they will speak more publicly and more often. We see that connection in verse 2, if you look down with me, as James continues his thought with four. Teachers, teachers will be judged greater for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. James takes what he has just warned about for teachers and broadens it. Teachers talk a lot and in prominent places, and we will be held accountable. But everyone talks and often stumbles. I think it's important to note here that James has included himself. James is certainly a teacher, and we have seen these in the first, seen in the, these first two verses that he includes himself with the use of we. We who teach, and perhaps more surprisingly to us, we all stumble in many ways. And you may be saying to yourself, wait, James, brother of Jesus, human author of a book of the Bible, who's demanding all these things of his audience to live out their faith, also stumbles in the present tense, and he's clear that he does. Teachers, just like everyone else, are not perfect in any sense of the word. 
However, James does seem to offer a path to perfection, right? Verse 2 says that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Parkview, there it is. We just have to never stumble in what we say. Never tell a lie. Never speak quickly in anger. Never speak badly about someone else. Never complain about a situation or person. Never post a rude comment on social media. But Parkview, if you do all that, you will per be perfect because certainly you can control the rest of your body then. By the way, if you're thinking, easy, I got that. I've been there at times thinking, I'm not that bad in what I say. I can be careful. James is clearly going to tell us how it really is in a few verses. James places immense weight on what comes out of our mouth as a clear and important indicator of our inward reality. And if we were able to completely control what we say, it first of all should reflect a heart of purity, but it also means that we should be able to uh, exercise self-control over the rest of our lives. And so after that introduction, that brings us to James' observation about the tongue. Look down with me at verses 3 through the first half of verse 5 as we see the disproportionate power of the tongue. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. James gives us all of the illustrations necessary to recognize the truth that the tongue is disproportionately powerful for its size. Now, I know most of us live in town and drive cars to work instead of riding horses, but we do live in Iowa, and I hope most of you know what a bit is for a horse. Uh, in case you don't, the bit is made up of the small metal components that go in the mouth of the horse and allow the rider to guide it. It's incredibly small, yet it gives the rider unbelievable control over this large animal. James also uses the example of a rudder to show the incredible power of small things. While boats have changed a lot since the first century, most boats still have a rudder on, in order to direct it. Whether that's a cruise ship or a fishing boat, the relatively small piece of material at the back of the boat is able to guide the entire ship. Again, these are rel relatively simple observations, but they do highlight the disproportionate power of words that we speak. And I'm sure you don't need much convincing of this fact, because as we come back to again, we've all experienced it in some way, right? The kind words of a friend in a time of discouragement can be such a sweet blessing. The I love you text from a family member uh, when you are having a bad day. I know reflecting on my past couple years here, the encouraging words that some of you have shared, the prayers that you have reminded me you are praying for, me, the, when you share how specific songs are, that we are singing are helping your personal discipleship, these are th things that are so encouraging to me. The brief conversations we have had in the lobby after services are gifts to my soul when ministry is challenging or during the week. I'm sure each of you have stories like this where simple words have stuck with you for years and given you life. But I'm sure we also all have stories on the other side, right? There's also the overheard gossip about yourself which causes bitterness in a relationship. The words spoken in anger that can't be taken back. And I'm not aiming to open up old wounds or cause further harm, but can't you remember that time in the past when someone made a comment that stuck with you for years? A boss, a coworker, a roommate, a family member. Now what about words that you spoke quickly that you now wish had never crossed your lips? There is great power in the words that we speak. And James uses the example of teacher intentionally in verse 1, but we can think of other roles that speak often with great impact, right? 
Parents, think about the number of words that you speak to your child each day, the impact that can have for years or decades to come. How are you affecting your family through your use of words? Or those of you in the workplace, how are the words that you say to your coworkers, to your patients, to your clients affecting your relationships with them? Do you recognize the significance of what you say? The tongue is a small member, but it has great effect. This can be for both good and bad. Bits and rudders can be very helpful and useful in directing the course of the larger body. However, they can also lead to great danger and cause harm. Proverbs 15.4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And as James will show in this next section, it is very often the latter that we see in the use of the tongue. It could be used for good, but much more often it is destructive. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words are often a restless evil that stains the whole body. So we've seen that the tongue is disproportionately powerful, but now let's look down and see that it is deadly. The second half of verse 5 through verse 8. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James turns the corner quickly here. For those of us who thought earlier, uh, it will be easy, I'll just perfectly control my tongue and everything I say. How are we feeling now? James continues his theme of disproportionate power by starting with the small fire. However, this quickly devolves into the deadly evil of a forest fire that he compares to a world of unrighteousness staining the whole body, set on fire by hell. Parkview, do you hear this? The tongue is described as a fire set by hell. James uses several images to describe the deadliness of the tongue here. And again, I'm assuming this needs little explanation or justification if we examine our own lives. Almost any unrighteous thing can find expression in our words. Any sin that you could possibly commit. Has anyone here ever spoken crassly, spoken aloud words of envy, dishonored or belittled fellow human beings, spoken quickly with words of anger, typed out that rude comment online, maybe expressed impatience or lack of contentment with God's plan for our lives? Or look at the news around us. People, both Christian and secular leaders, are constantly being destroyed by the words that they speak. A word spoken in haste or an inappropriate conversation with someone who isn't their spouse or words that they thought were private made public can change the course of their entire lives. Our words are audible and visible expressions of our sinfulness in so many ways. And our words also affect and shape our inner reality as well, right? While that is not saying that what we say completely dictates the state of our heart, it is certainly true. Self-derogatory comments can be helpful in some circumstances, but over time, we can convince ourselves that those things are true. Our self-image can be destroyed and we can lack confidence in anything we try to do. Or we can make certain jokes in order to fit in that at first might not be what we find funny, but eventually we will find ourselves laughing along without another thought. Or we can begrudgingly join in workplace gossip only to find ourselves looking for the next juicy rumor to pass along. 
James takes this incredibly seriously, saying that this is literally set on fire by the fires of hell, or Gehenna, used to describe the place of ultimate punishment for the wicked, including Satan. The deadly nature of the tongue comes from the deceiver and destroyer, Satan himself. James seems to connect this idea with clear creation imagery in verse 7. He lists the variety of animals that can and have been tamed or subdued by humans, echoing back to God's first command to humans to subdue creation in Genesis 1.28. That says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. However, as James 3.8 says, No human being can tame the tongue. The power of words is even seen in those first chapters of Genesis as, God, as Satan twists God's words in order to deceive Adam and Eve and sin enters the world. Sins of the tongue start immediately as Adam attempts to shift blame. Cain speaks in malice to Abel, inviting him out to the field before killing him and then lies to God about it. Lamech boasts of the great evil he has done and plans to continue doing. The sins of the tongue are present. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And one other prominent scene in the Old Testament that illustrates this point clearly is that of Isaiah 6. You may be familiar with this iconic story where Isaiah is granted sight into the throne room of God. He sees the holiness of God and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of what? Not, I am a man of dirty hands. Not, I am a man of impure eyes. Not, I am a man of a sinful heart. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah, the prophet who acted as the mouthpiece of God to deliver some of the most significant prophecies of the Old Testament, his primary concern in his approach to God is the use of his lips. In addition, as Isaiah acknowledges the corporate sin of Israel, he draws, doesn't draw specific attention to the idol worship or the child sacrifice or the mistreatment of the poor or the dozens of other sins that, Isaiah, or that Israel continues to commit. He says that they are a people of unclean lips. Isaiah recognizes the power of words and the ways that the lips reveal the inward reality and that his lips are unclean along with the rest of Israel. Again, this is not saying that the only sins committed are verbal, but that Isaiah, like James in our passage today, seems especially concerned about the sins of the tongue as an outworking and prominent display of our sinful humanity. The tongue reveals what is present in our hearts, right? As Jesus teaches, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Isaiah and James, two prominent teachers and literal mouthpieces for God, recognize their sinfulness in their human speech. Even those things that we may be gifted in or great at are still tainted by sin. The Bible shows over and over again that we can do nothing good on our own, and James extends that to our words. No human being can tame the tongue. It is set on fire by hell. And so James concludes this section with a specific example of a terrible sin we often commit with our tongue through our inconsistency. The tongue is disproportionately powerful, it is deadly, but finally we see that it is inconsistent. So look down with me at verses 9 through 12. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This may seem like a step back from uh, the language that James used in 5 through 8, but it is definitely not. In fact, it is more convicting. James turns from speech in general to the very particular speech of how we speak about others. James already assumes or knows that his audience is blessing or praising God. This doesn't seem to be a big ask for the church, right? Obviously, God expects our mouths and tongues to praise him, and this is one of the primary reasons he created them. This probably speaks to a variety of circumstances in their lives, but as the worship pastor here, uh, one, of the, one that clearly comes to mind is the act of corporate worship. Probably the greatest joy of my position is getting to see the gathered church, you all, open your mouths each week and sing praises to God. It's such a privilege for this team on stage to lead in blessing God and putting words of praise in your mouths. However, this, does, this, makes, this makes it even more convicting and noticeable for me when I exit the stage and the first words out of my mouth are not honoring. I might be complaining about something that went wrong or saying something that I noticed during the service that doesn't honor a team or congregation member, not to mention the dozens of times that I sin with my tongue throughout the week. And James seems to draw attention to a specific sin of speech in these couple verses. I've called it inconsistency because we both bless and curse, but it could also be called hypocrisy. How can we bless God and then turn around and curse those made in his likeness? This again echoes back to the creation language of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. James is calling his readers to see the incredible value and worth of human lives and the significance of cursing them. As C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations, especially with our words, right? He says it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, James would probably add all speech. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And again, there's no application here in James, but what would it look like, Parkview, if we were committed to being fully consistent with our tongues, blessing both God and humans created in his image? There are so many practical situations we could apply this to, and I would challenge you to reflect on those in your own life, but let me share just one that hopefully you can all relate to. Imagine that you are sitting in church on a Sunday morning. We've just finished singing King of Kings, where we praise our God three in one. Uh, hopefully that's not too hard for you to imagine, uh, but now the service is over. What's next? Assuming you spend some more time here, which we hope you do, what would that look like? As I've just confessed, it can be so easy to slip into those conversations of gossip or subtle put-downs, easy to be critical of this or that or complain about your boss at work. 
Mark, I would never complain about you. <laughs> what if instead you made time to intentionally seek out and welcome the visitors that are here this morning? What if you had a life-giving conversation with a brother or sister in Christ using the reflection question we have on the screen each week? What if you found that one person that you have noticed taking a next step of whole discipleship and honored them publicly for that? See, we many times find ourselves regretting the things we say, and James certainly points that out, but I often find myself regretting the things I didn't say. The time I noticed a visitor and didn't speak up and honor them by helping them feel welcome. The time I felt uncomfortable and didn't speak those words of love and honor to my brother in Christ. James declares clearly that it is inexplicable to have the same tongue pour forth both blessing and cursing, especially in the examples he gives. Like a spring that is somehow both salty and fresh. What? There's no category for that. Or like a fig tree that produces grapes or a grapevine producing figs. Parkview, I hope you realize how ridiculous these examples are. I pray that we would all continue to grow in understanding how equally ridiculous the sins of our tongues are. In James' concluding example of the fruit that drives further home this point of inconsistency, he is drawing closely on Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 6, 43 through 45 says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. We've been dancing around this all morning because James 3, and really a lot of James, is just an echo of this teaching from Jesus. Out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. Good trees produce good fruit, Bad trees produce bad fruit. You can know each tree by its fruit. But where Jesus leaves it ambiguous in these verses in Luke, James calls us out showing that no one can tame the tongue and from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. On our own, in our humanity, it is ultimately bad fruit and bad speech. And that's where this passage leaves off. While we could have divided sections differently or combined weeks as we preach through this book, James does not offer a solution here to remedy our speech. It's clearly important that we examine our speech and seek to have it be God-honoring and encouraging to others, but James clearly says no human being can tame the tongue. There's no next step, no clear command. It almost feels like there's no hope. But I can't leave us here, and Jesus certainly doesn't leave us here. James clearly says that no human being can tame the tongue, but we do have two wonderful, marvelous truths to examine this morning before we conclude. First, we have a biblical promise and tangible hope that we actually can experience true change in the way that we use our tongues through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can see true transformation in our use of words. In Parkview, it is not by trying harder. James hints at this in next week's passage through, des- through the description of wisdom from above that he, can act- that he actually called us to pray for all the way back in chapter 1. And all morning we have seen in James that the tongue is powerful and deadly and we cannot tame it. However, there is one who is more powerful and full of life who can. For those of us in Christ, we have been promised that the Holy Spirit is living in each one of us, growing us in Christ-likeness, making us more like Jesus, not just in action and motives, but also in our words. 
I was helped by the Christian speaker and author Jackie Hill Perry in seeing this. But if you remember back in the book of Acts, which we just finished going through as a church, all the way back at the beginning, Jesus promises his disciples right before ascending into heaven that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the, to the end of the earth. And one chapter later, we see this in Acts 2, as the Holy Spirit descends, what happens? The Spirit descended as tongues of, as a fire and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Parkview, I realized this at 1 a.m. as I was prepping on, for the sermon, and I almost went in and woke up Savannah in the next room. It was so incredible to me. If we look back in James 3.6, we see that our tongues in our sinfulness and humanity are set on fire by hell. But Acts 2.3 depicts a different type of fire, a fire from heaven, not hell, that can purify our speech for God's purposes. Fire in Scripture is often used as the image of destruction. However, it can also be an image of purification. Here in Acts 2, we have a fire from heaven, not from hell, purifying our tongues to proclaim the gospel to the end of the earth. The disciples experienced the same transformation that we experienced at our new birth in Christ with the giving of the Holy Spirit as a means to master and redeem our words. This means that when we speak in love and consistency like Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can actually see it happen. As we pray and see our inward reality renewed by the Holy Spirit, we will see our tongues change as well. Parkview, let us be a people with tongues set on fire by heaven and not by hell. However, the somewhat sad truth and the reason that James, even with the indwelling spirit, confesses that he still stumbles is that we will never experience true consistency, true freedom, or complete mastery over the tongue on this side of eternity. We will certainly see life change, but not that final step. And so part of you, this brings us to our second and final truth, and one that applies to each and every one of us, no matter where we're at. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I just want to say we are so glad that you are here. I confess on behalf of Parkview that even with the indwelling Holy Spirit leading us to speak more like Christ, we will still speak hastily and participate in unhelpful conversations. We will fall short in so many ways. But the good news of the gospel is that we aren't expected to be perfect. We can't be. Instead, we look to a Savior, Jesus on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. If you're familiar with the story of Christ's crucifixion, it is there that we see some of the most powerful spoken words in the Bible on display. We see Jesus betrayed by a close friend with plans made behind his back. We see his disciples desert and deny him. We see the fraud of a trial performed as justice is perverted. We see the crowds crying out, crucify him, crucify him, when they had hailed him as king a few days earlier. We see the guards mock and taunt him as he is naked and bleeding. Even the criminal hanging on the cross next to him joins in. But Parkview, what does Jesus say in response? See, Jesus is the fully consistent human, the one who spoke with pure grace, love, and honor for others. The one who taught and lived, Luke 6.28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. The one who, as he hung on that cross, in unimaginable pain, suffering the curses and jeers of both enemies and those he considered friends, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Jesus endured full cursing so that we could experience full blessing. On the cross, Jesus endured cursing so that we, but spoke a new word of forgiveness and love. As Jesus hung there and breathed his last, he said, it is finished. Declaring justification and freedom from sin to all who come to him in repentance and faith. That freedom, that forgiveness of sins is open to all who come to him. So Parkview, we must seek to honor God and, the, and those around us with our words. James just shows us how disproportionately powerful and deadly and inconsistent our tongues are in our sinful humanity. However, we have a great hope. The gift of the Holy Spirit to purify and redeem our hearts and therefore our tongues. But also the great hope of a Savior who endured cursing and spoke blessing and forgiveness of sins. Will you pray with me? Father, you are so good to us. Even when we speak in our human sinfulness, you offer us hope and freedom. We thank you for the promise to transform hearts and minds and therefore tongues through the power of your spirit. Lord, make us a people who seek to use our words for your purposes and not our own. Make us a people who pray with the psalmist, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.